This is an ABC podcast. A new space race is underway to provide global internet coverage via thousands of satellites. But this unprecedented number of satellite launches is making space a lot more dangerous. Hello, welcome to Future Tense. I'm Jennifer Leake. On today's program, the problem of space junk, the growing risk of collisions, and how our future use of space could be under threat. To explore a new data coming through. What's the blowback, Houston? It's not good. Most of our systems are gone. Debris chain reaction is out of control and rapidly expanding. Multiple satellites are down and they keep on falling. This pretty terrifying scene from the film Gravity details a nightmare scenario involving fast-moving space junk. From a scientific perspective, it's not entirely accurate, but there's no doubt space debris is a big and growing problem. It only takes one or a few collisions to drastically rewrite how people operate in space. Caleb Henry is from Quilty Analytics. They provide strategic advice to the satellite and space industry. There is concern. The risk is high and people are acting that way. I would say that the majority of people who are launching things into space are being very responsible. But there is a dearth of regulation around how to handle space debris. And with that gap, there's always the risk that something bad could happen and it would take hundreds or thousands of years to recover from it. There's a very real risk that low Earth orbit could become untenable, making further launches further out. Hugely difficult as well as the multiple pieces of debris have to be mapped and tracked and avoided in a launch. Now, does that matter to the Earth? Well, so much of what we know about climate change, so much about what we know about the things that are going on in the Earth are actually monitored from space. And even your banking transactions are going through satellite links and satellite networks as well, uh, alongside your telecoms. Your GPS in your car isn't coming magically from somewhere, it's coming from space. So we have a need to protect our modern society by protecting space and achieving a balance of use in the commons. That's Chris McLaughlin from a company called OneWeb. You'll hear more about what they're doing a bit later on. Apollo 11, this is the launch operations manager. The launch team wishes you good luck and Godspeed. At the beginning of the space age, in sort of 1957 or so, uh, space was just thought to be so big, you could pretty much do whatever you wanted up there with almost zero consequences. We now know that that is not the case. The satellites that we put up there hang around for ages. So there's about 6,000 satellites uh, in orbit around the Earth at the moment, but only about 40% of those are operational. The rest are just dead satellites that are taking up space and providing a hazard through the possibility of collisions. Dr Stuart Clark is an astronomy journalist and author of Beneath the Night Sky, How Stars Have Shaped the History of Humankind. 
Space is everywhere in the Earth's economy. Commercial companies play an increasing and important role in the space industry. It's facilitating some incredible projects and technology, but it's making space a lot more crowded. Jonathan McDowell is an astrophysicist at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Commercial space started really being a thing in the 90s after the end of the Cold War, but it's it's just recently that things have taken off. You know, back in the 1960s, Apollo, that was, you know, the space age. But at that time, typically there are only a couple hundred, even less than a hundred satellites working at one time. And now there are over 3,000 and the number's just shooting up. The other big change is the new space race to improve global internet access via satellite mega constellations. Elon Musk's Starlink company is leading the rush to grab space in low Earth orbit. Other players include Amazon, Telesat and OneWeb. The satellite industry is going through a period of rapid transformation right now. In the past, you had satellites that were relatively static and worked for 15 to 20 years, usually in what's called geostationary Earth orbit. And that's uh, 36,000 kilometers above the Earth's surface. So they would provide the same services over the same area, and it was a stable cash-making business. But recently, there have been a lot of advances in technology that have allowed engineers to shrink the size of the spacecraft and actually lower the orbit and then change the, uh, the configuration of the spacecraft so that they can point beams in different areas and suddenly you have a very dynamic system. And from this has emerged several ideas of how to provide internet to the entire world through large systems of smaller, more powerful, uh, shorter-lived spacecraft. And that's what's revolutionizing the industry. We are T plus 45 seconds into liftoff, and we have just had liftoff of our Falcon 9 vehicle carrying our Starlink payload. Starlink has so far launched around 1,300 satellites. But in the coming years, there are plans for over 40,000. That's 15 times the number of operational satellites in orbit today. This technology could really help a country like Australia, where remote and regional areas often struggle to get good coverage. Starlink infrastructure is actually already being rolled out in parts of Victoria and New South Wales. The thing is, these mega constellations are a dramatic change in the way space is being used, and they're increasing the risk of collisions. There's also been criticism from astronomers about how these satellites are impacting the night sky. Maybe it's the way we want to go, industrialised space, but it shouldn't be done unilaterally by one country or one company. It should be discussed by all the stakeholders, which are all the countries and cultures around the world. What we discovered in 2019 when SpaceX started launching their Starlink satellites is that those satellites are big enough and bright enough that if they are in a very low orbit and oriented particular ways, they can be just super bright. Once SpaceX's satellites are in their operational orbit, they're a bit fainter. And after an outcry from astronomers, they change the design and also the way they operate them to make them fainter yet. And so now they're at the point where the SpaceX constellation is just on the margins of too faint to see with the naked eye, even in a really dark spot. We should talk about Is the night sky something that is a natural resource for humanity 
and I think it is, and I think it's culturally important to many, many people, then we should protect it as part of the environment. And that might mean a cap on the number of satellites above a certain size in a certain orbit. You know, we're not trying to stop these these uh, uh, internet constellations that are going up, but, but we do think there should be some regulation, some cap on them that takes into account the light pollution environmental impacts as well as the space traffic impacts that we've talked about with the, the risks of collisions. OneWeb was one of the first to get started with these mega constellations. In fact, Elon Musk was an original partner in the project. Chris McLaughlin is Chief of Government and Regulatory Engagement. OneWeb was a vision by an American entrepreneur to provide broadband to everyone, everywhere. Back in about 2012, he envisaged the idea of low-Earth orbit satellites bringing communications to the most distant village or the most remote community. And he set about with an original set of shareholders uh, making this vision a reality uh, with satellites, approximately 1,200 originally, that would go up into a 1,200-kilometer uh, orbit around the Earth. These are traveling through space uh, at equal intervals, and these provide your coverage so that just like when you're driving down the road on a mobile phone, it switches over from mast to mast, so the satellites pick up and disconnect the signal along the way. And it's done seamlessly so that you have your internet connection, but it's via space. We're going to see pretty soon a realization that we just, we just can't fit any more satellites in some of these low orbits. So there's a bit of a rush right now for companies, I think, to claim, oh, we, we want permission to get these large numbers of satellites up while the going is still good. China is another big issue here because uh, China didn't used to be a big space player until the mid-90s. Now it's huge. It's getting up to be on a par with the U.S. in terms of amount of, of space usage. And they still, I think, are a little behind the U.S. in their attitude to the environmental issues in outer space. And they have, you know, as, as is typical for sort of the latecomers, uh, as we see in other environmental issues, they, 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 I think they have a bit of the attitude of, well, the U.S. has been messing things up for decades. We need our chance now before we start joining the cleanup gang. If you're wondering what can happen when space junk collides, an incident that occurred in 2009 is a good example. Here's Jonathan McDowell again from the Harvard-Smithsonian Centre for Astrophysics. An Iridium communication satellite, so this was a um, basically a, a, a cell phone system that used satellites, uh, an American company, and they had about 70 satellites in orbit. And one of them was sort of shortening along its orbit one day, and an old dead Soviet satellite uh, got in the way. And so you had two half-ton, roughly, satellites that smashed into each other at 20,000 miles an hour. If you imagine a one-ton truck hitting you at 100 miles an hour, that's a good sort of measure of energy. It's about a megajoule. This collision in space had 54,000 times that amount of energy. That created thousands of pieces of shrapnel from, from those satellites that are still, many of them, orbiting the Earth today. In those days, there wasn't sort of a real early warning system the U.S. military track the satellites and they go, uh, oh, yeah, we see what satellite, what orbit that's in, what orbit's that in. But in those days, they didn't sort of predict for to see if there was a risk of collision, except for just for the space station with the astronauts on it. After this collision, people went, 
you know, you should really be doing a better job on this. Now we see much more than when this collision happened, satellites going, oh, I'm going to do a little maneuver because there's a warning that I might hit this piece of debris. With the commercial space industry booming, the laws and regulations that govern our use of space are struggling to keep up with the pace of change. Here's Chris McLaughlin again from OneWeb. We haven't got in space an accepted structure for policing the commons, the space commons. What is the appropriate number? How should we be ensuring that space continues to be used by all societies going forward over many, many decades to come. Why should we allow one entrepreneur, for example, to potentially pollute space uh, to a terminal level? Now, in all cases, uh, that will have to be reflected on the good that's done. You know, we have a very connected society. You know, I'm, I myself am talking to my in-laws in Sydney on a regular basis, and it's done via connections that we all take for granted. Satellite plays a key part in those. But we have to balance off what is good for us now with what's good for our grandchildren. So we do need to reflect on what is the correct approach to the space commons. Are all satellite operators behaving equally responsibly? And does it require some thinking on a national and international level to achieve the kind of balance we have with the International Maritime Organization? Victoria Sampson is from the Secure World Foundation. They work to promote the safe and sustainable use of space. So the 1967 Outer Space Treaty is really the foundational document for space law. And it's held up really well, all things considered. You know, it's short. It's nine articles long, you know, nine paragraphs, essentially. It spells out some principles um, that are still very effective and used today the idea that no one owns space, that there are not to be any weapons of mass destruction in space, that when you're in space, you're supposed to be acting with due regard of others, you know, not deliberately interfering with their ability to use space. For example, when China um, tested their anti-satellite weapon in 2007, created large uh, 3,000 pieces of trackable debris, legally they had done nothing wrong. Now, the letter of the law was fine. What about the spirit? I mean, clearly that's going to affect the people's ability to use space. So that's why there's been a move recently to say, okay, you know what we need to do is we need to figure out what sort of behavior do we think is responsible, but what behavior do we think is irresponsible? Because you can't criticize people for acting outside the norms if you haven't come to some sort of agreement as to what those norms are. Imagine that we launch a satellite and it operates for six months, but then it's allowed to linger for 25 years. Mm. That's That's what the ruling is right now that we don't want to put too much of restrictions on satellite manufacturers to say, once you're finished with your satellite, you should bring it down. No, we go, yeah, hang around for 25 years. Unfortunately, that was a rule that was set back in the mid-1990s. And at the time, when there were very few objects and it was very difficult to build satellites with propulsion systems, that it, it, it really extracted a, a big cost on the satellites to do that. We didn't do it, but we haven't updated our rules and regulations. So what I would really like to see is just some of the basic regulations to be a little bit more stringent so that we won't continue to leave big objects up there for many, many, many decades after their operational use, because that just makes more problems for us. We want satellites to, to survive well, but if we have two or three major collision events or no more explosion events, it'll make it more difficult for everybody. Darren McKnight is a senior technical lead at Leo Labs. 
They're a company providing satellite tracking data. The satellites that are being launched in low Earth orbit right now are routinely pretty small, a couple hundred kilograms, maybe 300 kilograms, maybe 50 kilograms. Unfortunately, um, up until around the year, say, 2010, 2005, we launched much larger objects into space and we left them. So this is a global problem. It's not a single country that's responsible. But so there are like 9,000 kilogram rocket bodies, just rocket bodies that are no longer being used, that are orbiting in low Earth orbit. So you think about comparing some of these rocket bodies that are 1,000 kilograms or 9,000 kilograms, and the typical satellites that get deployed now are only a couple hundred kilograms. So when those big objects, if they were to collide, they would create tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, lethal fragments. Unfortunately, 9,000 kilogram rocket body or a 2,000 kilogram payload that was launched in 1995 has no intent to avoid, no capability to avoid. It's completely agnostic what it's going to run into. So we have sort of a, a cumulative risk that's sort of percolating in the background there in certain locations in, Earth or, in low Earth orbit. Traditionally, all the satellite tracking data has been gathered by the US military. But now, private companies like Leo Labs are providing crucial information which help stop collisions all the time. We'll get paid for watching the satellites get launched. As a matter of fact, we did work the SpaceX Transporter 1 launch in January where they launched 143 satellites at once. Well, that's actually a challenge to get those 143 satellites, get them uniquely identified, give them unique um, orbital elements, and tell the owner-operators, this one's yours, that one's yours, that one's yours, when the 143 going at once. So that's one way we do it. Another way for collision avoidance, you just tell us what satellites that you want us to be watching for you, and then you pay us for the service of warning you about anything else coming nearby. In low Earth orbit, below about 2,000 kilometers, many of these new constellations that are being used for global connectivity, for Earth imaging, uh, resource management, communications, many of those are being deployed into low Earth orbit because they're closer, you have less of a delay. You know, the Starlink satellites being launched by SpaceX is, are obviously building out a, a very substantial space infrastructure. And it's constellations like that that, you know, we'll be able to help keep safe by uh, explaining to them not just where all the operational satellites are, but where all the debris is, which is really where much of the risk comes from, is from, from the debris that's already up there. And the problem, it cost billions to remove this stuff from orbit. Here's astronomy journalist and author Stuart Clark. One of the barriers, I would say, is that satellites remain the, the property of the people that place them in orbit. And that might not sound like a bad thing, but what it does mean is that nobody can really go up there and, and salvage them. There's no equivalent laws in space to say maritime salvage, where you can go and, and anyone can go and salvage a wreck and it, and it becomes theirs. So up in space, um, you can't even go and pull debris out of orbit without um, the explicit approval of the company that owns it. There's also been issues in the past about space weapons, because if you build a spacecraft that can go grab a satellite and pull it down from orbit, well, if you can grab a dead satellite 
you can also grab a live one mm -hmm. and do it with that as well. And so there's been a lot of very careful negotiation that's been going on. And the route forward appears to be that satellite removal from orbit should become a service industry. Mm. So satellite manufacturers and, and owners will then employ companies afterwards to go and take down their old satellites and dispose of them and get rid of them. I would say, however, that my optimism is is stoked by the the number of lawyers that are working in this area. There's there's a lot of space law that's being worked out now, based on the foundation stone of the Outer Space Treaty, which was signed by and ratified by by many nations in 1967. And that's the foundation stone for the peaceful uses of outer space. And that's where the lawyers are now working to see as our needs and our understanding of space and our ways that we want to use it change, can they come up with a law uh, or a set of laws that work for everyone? One idea which has some promise, active debris removal, or ADR. Astroscale is a private company experimenting with ADR and working to make space sustainable. My name is Harriet Brettel. I'm the head of business analysis. So that primarily looks at, obviously, space debris is a challenge across multiple fronts. But one of those is, how do we commercialise this service? How do we incentivise satellite op operators and others to take space debris seriously? And how do we demonstrate the value of those debris removal services so that we can keep space clean for future generations. At the end of March, Astroscale successfully launched their ELSA-D mission. It'll be the first time active debris removal technology has been commercially demonstrated. We're launching two spacecraft together, so they go up together at the same time. So one of them is ELSA, that's our Astroscale services satellite. And then we're also launching a smaller client satellite at the same time. So they go up together into space um, and then they will separate. And we essentially do a number of capture techniques to show that we can uh, capture the client under a number of increasingly uh, challenging scenarios. So it, it's kind of like we're bringing up our own piece of space junk with us and showing mm. that we can capture it. So first time we capture it under control conditions. So we know exactly where it is. It has a maintained position. We capture, then we release. The second time, we start that client tumbling, so it starts rotating. And that makes the capture substantially harder, as I'm sure you can imagine, because mm. you have to match the, the tumble rate of your servicer with that of the client. And then the third time is where we effectively lose the client. So we cut all communications between the two satellites, and we have to use the onboard sensors and cameras from our ELSA servicer to find uh, where that client is. And then at the end, everything is safely deorbited and that's the end of the mission. Australian scientists are working on technology to help avoid collisions in space. This is gonna sound a little far out, but it involves shooting a laser beam from Earth into space. Craig Smith is the CEO of EOS Space Systems. We use our tracking systems to predict that two objects uh, of a suitable size that we can manoeuvre are going to have a collision. We would then calculate well, an engagement with that, with that target, apply the laser beam to it, 
to either slow it down or speed it up. We don't really care very much, but we would apply force change the velocity by about a millimetre per second. You know, these are things that are travelling at 30,000 kilometres per hour or, or 7 kilometres per second, and we're going to change its velocity by a millimetre per second, um, and then uh, we apply the force in the direction to slow it down, as I say, or speed it up. And just, if you think of you know, two cars approaching an intersection, they're going to have a collision at the intersection. If one of them puts their brakes on slightly, then the other car goes through and you, you don't have a crash. So basically we're just avoiding that being in the same space for that same very short period of time, and then they go off on their on their merry way afterwards without having crash causing you know, thousands of pieces of new space junk. The technology has been in development for the last seven years and pretty much all the hardware has been built. They hope to test it out in space by the end of this year. And in case you're wondering, they have all sorts of systems in place to make sure the laser beam doesn't interfere with aircraft or other satellites in space missions to go up and harpoon an object in space and bring it down to the atmosphere to burn up yeah, tend to be horrendously expensive. They, they reduce the long-term risk, but they don't actually do anything about your current risk of having collisions in space because they're stopping bringing down a couple of big objects means that you know those things don't break up and in the future you don't you have less bits of space junk but it doesn't do anything about your current risk and so what we're taking a slightly different approach is a bit more subtle that would just stop a collision happening rather than thinking we're going to clean up all of the bits of space junk for all you know for, which is a good thing and something we need to do as well mm. but we also need to make sure we don't create more space junk by allowing these collisions to happen while we find out how we work out how we're going to actually bring all this stuff down. Uh, it comes down to satellite operators being responsible, making sure that they can safely deorbit their spacecraft, and on the off chance that they can't, that there are secondary means of removing them, either launching them again so that they never reach an altitude where they become a long-term risk, or paying someone to take a service or spacecraft and manually deorbit it. So. There are a lot of ideas about how to do that servicing approach, but none of them have been proven out uh, as a business yet. There are certainly initiatives to do so, but um, we have to be proactive. Uh, space is valuable, and we need to make sure that it stays a place of value creation uh, and wonder for people for many years to come. these two things will come together, the law aspect of it, and then seeing space as an environment. And once we recognize it as an environment, then we have to ask ourselves, how do we want to use that environment? What is acceptable for us to want to do rather than just pillage it for everything that we can possibly find that's up there. Part of, of seeing space as an environment naturally encompasses ideas around space debris. What principles and even laws do we want to set on satellite operators for the future of their satellites when they're old and defunct? Where are our boundaries? How do we want to exploit space and use space, but also conserve it at the same time. 
Dr Stuart Clark is an astronomy journalist and author. Also in the program, Caleb Henry from Quilty Analytics. Jonathan McDowell is an astrophysicist at the Harvard-Smithsonian Centre for Astrophysics. Chris McLaughlin is Chief of Government and Regulatory Engagement at OneWeb. Darren McKnight is Senior Technical Lead at Leo Labs. Harriet Breschel, Head of Business Analysis at Astroscale. And Craig Smith, he's CEO of EOS Space Systems. And if you're interested in learning more about space law, head to the Future Tense website where you can find a program on the subject. I'm Jennifer Leake. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.